If you like sports talk with absolutely no sports talk, welcome to the Just Not Sports podcast. This is the show where a couple guys who work in sports talk to the people who play and cover sports about anything they like, just not sports. Today's show, Adam, dedicated to all our martial arts fans out there. Yes. We will start with one of the most remarkable people in all of sports, two-time Olympic judo gold medalist Kayla Harrison. Uh, if you're not familiar, Kayla has courageously come forward to discuss the sexual abuse she endured from a youth coach, and now she's using her harrowing experience to help all kinds of other survivors. It's an absolutely amazing story. Really wanted to share it with our audience here. And then we're going to take things back to the lighter side. With the NBA coming back, we're going to break down the legendary fight in Game of Death between Kareem Abdul-Jabbar and Bruce Lee, which is still the best NBA fight that didn't involve Ron Artest. (laughs) We'll also slam some hammers, give you some distractions, and so much more. I'm your co-host, Brad Burke. I'm a sports marketer in Chicago. No Garrett this week. No Joe this week. Garrett's caught at work. Joe, watching the Cubs. (laughs) We are taping this during Game 6 of the World Series because we are committed. And speaking of commitment, the man who's been here for... What, a year now? Yeah, I've missed a couple, missed a couple shows but recently, but but you're back but and I'm you're here. here. He is a leading sports media strategist from who has logged time with the University of Colorado the, Green Bay Packers. The now they're back University <laughs> the, of Colorado. The we're back University of Colorado. The maybe sort of. Gonna come back, Green Bay Packers. Time will tell. The it's one of those years, Green Bay Packers. <laughs> it is. It is. It's one of those in in Farvian terms. It was a ten and six out in the first round year. It's Randy Moss Moon year. That's what we'll call it. And uh, <laughs> um, or Michael Vick is the future of football year. Oh yeah, you, I'm sure you were on the sideline uh-huh. for that game. Uh, anyway, uh, and you've also worked with sports brands. Your name is Adam Allard. Adam, how are you? Good man. Drinking a cup of coffee. Yeah. Getting getting revved up. It's, it's that time of year where it's a little dark out, a little early, so it's a little <laughs> liquid energy. How did you spend your Halloween? Uh, I was flying. I was in Denver once again, uh, visiting my father, who's recovering from a stroke. Uh, he said he didn't mind me talking about that. So, uh, yeah, I was flying back from Denver yesterday and got home. Got in. The elevator to my building um, was about halfway up, and the fire alarm went off. Oh. Dropped me all very rapidly. The elevator dropped back down to the first floor. I got off, and they said, well, it's going to be a while before you can take the elevators upstairs. Um, there's a smoke alarm that went off somewhere. We got to wait for the fire department to come. So I live on the 20th floor of my building. I grabbed my luggage. And I walked 20 floors uh, up to my apartment. Do we had a fire drill in my building? I lit work in the Hancocks so were 95 floors up. I walked five floors down and was out of breath. Oh, trust me. I stopped every five floors, sent my bags down for a second, uh, and continued dude. on my way up. But you know what? Made it home. Heart and, of a champion. I did nothing. 
<laughs> and then did nothing. Then did nothing. I dressed up like Frankenstein for my daughter, and my wife was a witch, and my daughter was Elsa. She was supposed to be something Halloween-y, and then my wife made the mistake of walking her through Target. And my daughter was like, oh, Elsa costume. Now I'm a princess lover. And I'm like, I worked so hard for her not to be like a princess girl. Oh, well, she did say next year she wants to go as a vampire. So we're back. Perfect. Like what kind of vampire? Like true blood or like true blood? I was thinking like hypersexualized. She's three and a half, Adam. She's not watching true blood. Jean Jean Benet vampire. (laughs) Oh, no. Uh, have, do, were you on the episode we talked about Jean Benet? Uh, I'm not sure. If do you have I, a theory? You would remember. I went deep on. That was one of my distractions. Uh, yeah. Oh, I vividly remember. Of course, not probably growing up. Uh, forty In minutes Colorado, before that yeah. happened. Yeah. Wh- real quick, at all with a big asterisk of allegedly. What do you think the 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 what What do you think was the case there? Not the parents, okay, but a relative. Okay, yeah. How would they have not identified this relative? How would the parents not have identified the relative? I don't know. Have you ever seen American Psycho? The psychology that happens in the affluent community. <laughs> we'll talk about that's a whole other show, but we can talk about that. American Psycho, very polarizing movie. I I read the book, didn't know quite how I felt about the book. Saw the movie was disappointed initially. It's grown on me, but then it be, kind of became this cult hit and it's kind of, I've kind of grown beyond. I'm like, eh, it's not that good. Uh, so have you seen, the interest, interesting thing about that book, have you seen Rules of Attraction with James? I Bradley? have, and that's, the, that's Patrick Bateman's brother. Yeah, which is weird because they both are psycho, but in completely different ways. Uh, Rules of Attraction, also not a good movie. Terrible movie. Good soundtrack, yeah. though. And there's a yeah, really. You that, know what? I mean, I'm all about. The I was just about to go into it. We're not going to get into that movie, but it's it's we'll lose people. Yeah, if we haven't already. Speaking of which, speaking of losing people, let's turn the tables. Talk about gaining people. Let's talk about gaining people to come on just not sports. If you listen to the show, you know we don't just invite people on behind the scenes. We go public with our invites because they've expressed something they love about, you know, something other than sports, and therefore we we deserve to talk to them about it. So. We call this process slamming the hammer. Adam, who do you want to slam the hammer to this week? Well, as you know, uh, Howard Stern comes up a lot on this show, not because he's involved in sports, but because of the different guests he has on. Um, He, over the years, has had on Donald Trump, as we well know, uh, coming out of this election. Another prominent politician he's had on is Jesse Ventura. And Jesse Ventura has... He joked on the Howard Stern show that in 2016, there would be a Ventura Stern ticket. Uh, And at the time, it sounded like a joke. (laughs) But I'm not so sure with what we're dealing with now, the election coming up next week. It's not a bad idea. So I say, let's get Jesse Ventura on and start his march towards presidential candidacy for 2020. Can we just... Agree though that it is a bad idea. <laughs> like you said, it's is not it, a bad idea. Is it a worse idea yes. than what we have now? Explain. Yes. Because one Donald Trump is like destroying the United States, the fabric of our democracy. What would two be like? I don't know. Badass. 
And Ventura, although I guess you could say Vin- adding Jesse. I never thought I'd say this, but adding right, Jesse exactly. Ventura, adding Jesse Ventura to the ticket would bring a grounded, experienced <laughs> atmosphere to back to the Republican Party or whatever. Now you see what I'm saying. Ah, uh, okay. Well, yeah, I'm still gonna wrap my head around that, and I'm just gonna hope it never. What do you think about that? If well, he if he you? came on, we talked about Predator, right? Yeah, among other things. We should talk about Predator because not only was Jesse Ventura in it, and we do count wrestlers as athletes, they are. They are. Um, Carl uh, Weathers it, played for the Raiders. Oh, that's right. That's two That's two pretty awesome pro athletes in the same movie. And Arnold, bodybuilder. We could do a Predator Month. That sounds weird. <laughs> <laughs> Never mind. A Predator Month. <laughs> I mean, I don't really want to do... I don't want to be one of those podcasts. It's like, we're going to do one episode each about the predators. And then by the time you're at like AV, by the time you're at like AVP Requiem, you're like, this is a bad idea. Uh, turns out the grip also was a punter <laughs> for the Bengals back in 82. Uh, I would, I would know that, that punter. Um, I've been listening to this podcast called the new flesh. I mentioned them a couple weeks ago uh-huh. and they, they were going through the Hellraiser movies and I shouted that out as a distraction. I got they did them one by one and after like four they were like we can't do this anymore we got to double these up they're getting so bad so by the time they got to like seven eight nine the one go the host he's like seven hellraiser like hellseeker was the worst movie i've ever seen and then 80s like this i didn't think it'd get any worse but hellraiser deader the worst movie I've ever seen. And then by the final one, he's like, this is legitimately the worst movie I've ever seen. It's like half found footage. They filmed it like three weeks just to hold on to the rights to the character. And they replaced Pinhead with an actor who wasn't Pinhead because Pinhead said no. Well, Pinhead knew that they were so bad. Yeah. He was like, if your whole bag is like, I play Pinhead and you're like, I'm not going to do this for two days of work because Pinhead has no, it's not like they're in those movies a lot. They, They show up for like three scenes and they're like, Come with me, Kirsty, and that's it. Yeah. Huh. Anyway, <laughs> I've talked a lot about horror movies. Quick, uh, quick foreshadowing. Maybe, <laughs> maybe the distractions this week gonna continue that theme. You, I didn't realize you were into horror movies. I am. Yeah. What? So, as a person who's my girlfriend always at like she wants to watch The Purge, and I, so I don't. Alan en- Robinson, the Jaguars, big fan of the Purge movies. I don't enjoy roller coasters. Or scary movies because life is st- stressful enough right. that I don't want to be intentionally stressed out. What do you find enjoyable about horror movies? Uh, one, I was a film critic, uh-huh. not for a huge outlet, but I was a paid film critic for a few years, so I can appreciate like just the movie making, storytelling side of it. I can watch a horror movie, and if you want to have a an actual discussion about what they did with Freddy versus Jason or Hellraiser, I can do that. Mm-hmm. Uh. Two, I think there's something cool about, um, I think there's something cool when a horror movie either takes like, like a, takes interesting themes in humanity and finds like ways to amp it up and and create it to be horrific. Uh Like I like horror movies with depth. I don't think there's just a visceral experience to being scared. So I always, Roger Ebert said that like in a horror, in a horror movie at the theater, there'd be a huge scream and then there'd be laughter. And it's the body's way of like resetting after being scared. And I think that like the way we enjoy watching a comedy with like a big audience is the way you'd enjoy watching a horror movie and like talking about it and laughing about it. I don't know. 
it's it, it's a toss. I don't sit around and just like I'm not like on Netflix like oh sweet you know Pumpkinhead five I'm gonna break this down tonight. But if you want to talk old school slasher movies, I can do it. Interesting. <laughs> so right. are you? But you're not like a Saul guy. Like you don't. Like I don't the, like the Saw movies. Or like I don't like torture porn. Human centipede. You no, know, I thought the first Human Centipede was a brilliant idea in that it was such a basic premise that uh-huh. was so horrifying to think about it. I'm not big into body horror, but like there's a whole genre of body horror that is like David Cronenberg and that stuff's like weighty and interesting or mm. you know um certain other or Martyrs which is like sure. a really freaky movie about you know sort of pushing your body to the edge of experience to see if there's something after. But I don't like Saw. I don't like, um, I don't like hostile stuff. That's like, Oh, other people might just cut you up into pieces for no reason. Yeah. Almost like, pornographic. Yeah. It's uh, torture. Porn's a good, good name for it. I, I also, ghost stories tend to stick with, stick with me. Like they oh. scare, they scare me. So yeah. like I'll be in the basement after watching the conjuring and like be scared. Yeah. yeah I don't That's not like a good look. That. I'm all, uh, like, I'm in my thirties. That's not a good look for me. Yeah. Maybe <laughs> I don't like feeling that vulnerable about entertainment. <laughs> You're six foot five and no MMA. You're not vulnerable to ghosts even. That's true. <laughs> Watch out ghosts. I like that. We'll talk more about that during our game of death segment. <laughs> all right. My hammer is to Matt Harvey. The Mets pitcher. Mm-hmm. I don't know if you saw his Halloween costume. No. Went as a mashup of um, went as a he went as the Dark Knight. So he went as Two Face. I'm going to show you this while we're talking. Okay. See, Adam. See if you can identify what's wrong with this look. Okay. Wait, wait, wait. <laughs> Unclick off the picture. <laughs> wait, is he half? <laughs> wait, so he says he's Two-Face, but is he half Joker? Yeah, he's half Joker. <laughs> like, so on Deadspin and some other places, they're like, we can't tell if he's doing something different with it or if he just doesn't remember Dark Knight enough. <laughs> so huh. I got to ask him. Did you just mess this up or did you, were you trying to go as like, like a new version of the character? Yeah. He fucked up. That smacks of, he messed up. It's, it's a great looking costume. He looks great. The makeup looks great. Alpha looks great. Custom suit. Uh, probably not. I'm just the correct character. I'm trying to give him credit and think what, you know what his interpretation might be, but there's just no good answer. It's kind of like me me going as Matt Harvey, but dressing up like Tom Glavin. <laughs> you know? Like, okay, what are you doing? <laughs> All right, with that, those are hammers. If you want someone you want us to slam a hammer to, just email us justnotsports at gmail or go on Twitter at justnotsports. Or hell, just send those people the invite. Just be like, go on Just Not Sports and talk about this. We'll do the rest. Right now, we're going to get into it. Sobering things up for a minute, but it's a really inspirational story. Kayla Harrison, two-time medalist, gold medalist for the United States in judo, the first ever back-to-back uh, gold medalist for, for judo of the United States. Uh, she is an amazing woman. I, I ran into her at the ESPNW Summit. 
on a panel uh, for Olympic athletes. She was uh, sexually abused by her coach, which is like, as a father, like every parent's like worst nightmare. Uh, and something that I think all of us can relate to, whether um, you know her story or not. And what I think is fascinating about her is she's always said, um, I'm a survivor, I'm not a victim. And she's turned the tables. She's out there doing great work, starting her own foundation. Uh, we talk a lot about her situation, her decision to come forward. And I think, you know, again, it's a more serious than our normal um, stuff, but we cover sports culture on the show. And I, I think it's an important um, uh, lesson. And hopefully if you're listening and you know people who have been abused or, um, or you've been a victim yourself, uh, you can maybe take some inspiration from uh, Kayla and know that other, she's encouraging other people to just know that people are out there to help. So we are going to take a quick break. We'll be right back with that interview. I'm going to jump right in. I, I will say this. I am from Oxford, Ohio. So like yes. liter- literally 20 minutes down the road from Middletown where you're from. I got to start before we get into your amazing personal story. I have to start with one question. I always ask everyone from our region of the country. Yay or nay on Cincinnati skyline chili? Yay. Yeah, exactly. Right. Why? <laughs> why do people give us such a hard time about this? like skyline then you're not really from ohio exactly exactly i will say this i live in chicago i've I've been to a few bars that will like try to put cincinnati chili on the menu and they never get it right yeah. you can't just throw any chili on spaghetti that's disgusting no 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 that's not american <laughs> um <laughs> well you know what exactly right and it's certainly on ohioan um that's, well, that's on for sure <laughs> Uh, you know, as we were talking about a minute ago, you know, I got a chance at the ESPNW panel to see your amazing um, uh, panel with several other uh, U.S. Olympians. First of all, congratulations on your second gold medal. How have you processed, um, you know, how have you processed the time since Rio? And what's it? What, what was it like, I guess, emotionally to, to defend your title and go down as one of the greatest Olympians of all time? Yeah, well, I think... It's been a whirlwind for sure, and I was a little more prepared this time around for what happens post-Olympics because of London, but it was definitely a much harder road to Rio, and it was a much more more of a grind to defend my title. So for me, it was twice as sweet, and obviously going down um, in history the first time by winning the first for an American was amazing, but now you know, I've cemented my legacy in judo, not just in the United States, but in the world as being one of only like seven ever defend their title so it's been amazing it's been an honor it's been a whirlwind and i'm just taking it one day at a time but enjoying every step of the way <laughs> so when did you first get into to judo what was it that drew you into the sport my mother uh actually took judo in college so when i was a little girl she wanted me to learn self-defense so when i was about six years old she took me to a local dojo and from the beginning, I just loved it. I loved everything about it. I loved learning how to throw people and flying through the air. And I really also, <laughs> I think that that young girl in me needed some discipline. So I like the fact that martial arts is, is very deeply um, rooted in, in a system of culture and a system of discipline. So for me, it was amazing from the very beginning. Um, 
And when did you first know that you're an elite talent? I always kind of am curious about when you when I when I work with or or, or I'm around, um, you know, world class athletes. When did it first occur to you, like, wow, I'm I'm not just good, but I'm I'm like super elite. This is going to be something I can take to, as far as I needed to go. Um. Well, I think I didn't know how good I could be right away. I mean, I wasn't very good competitively right away, but by the time I hit 12, I knew that I wanted to be an Olympian. And by the time I was 16, I knew I didn't want to just be an Olympian. I wanted to be Olympic champion. So I think from that age, I sort of knew I had talent. I had promise. It was just about finding the right team and putting it all together to make to make that formula of success. Yeah, and you talk about that formative, you know, those formative years between 12 and and your late teens. Um, and this is where at the at, at the ESPNW panel we had an opportunity to hear your story. I think a lot of people might be familiar with your story from from reading about um, you know you you talking about your personal history with ESPN. But it was it was during this time that um, your coach at the time began uh, a pattern of sexual abuse. And and I guess I would start with when did it start and as a young person i think you were you were 13 correct i mean how do you how do you even start to process what's happening being so young yeah. in that situation well that's the thing at at 13 you can't really process something like that and that's why it's against the law you know kids do not have the ability to to make those decisions and to and mm-hmm. to know what's right and what's wrong but for me you know one of the things it started much younger than that. I mean, I started, I went to, I started at that club with Daniel when I was eight years old. Wow. And during, during those years, you know, it was all part of the grooming process. And at that time I started, um, he started grooming me. I started to become alienated from my friends and my family. I started to, to change, not just as a person, but as an athlete, but as a person and my, you know, I, I couldn't look people in the eye and I couldn't, um, I couldn't do anything unless Daniel approved. And that's really when, um, I would say the, the emotional and mental trauma began. And then, of course, the sexual stuff all started when I was a little bit older. But by that time, I was already so alienated and so alone that I really felt like it was that was it, it was supposed to happen. That was what was meant to happen. But again, at 13, at 12, at whatever age, you don't really have the mental capacity to, to know what's right and what's wrong. And that's why when someone in a position of power takes advantage of you, it's, uh, it's a really bad thing. You know, I think, you know, I'm a, I'm a father of a young daughter. She's three years old. When I hear stories like this, my initial instinct is, oh, well, it's so, when something bad happens, you know, you, you train your kids, just tell me, tell me what's going on. But it's not that simple. And I guess from your perspective, uh, you know how difficult is it to to come forward or to, to confide in somebody about this? Because, like you said, it's there's a power dynamic. There's there's all these things that are happening, and and conf- you know, I'm sure a lot of confusion, um, guilt, you know, anger. How how do you process what's happening, and how difficult is it for for uh, people in that that situation to actually come forward and and ask for some help? Yeah, I think that breaking the silence is probably one of the hardest things that a person can ever have to do. And like I said, it's, it's years of, of emotional and mental trauma where you just believe that you need this person or that if you say something, no one will believe you. Or if you if you choose to act, then you're not going to be as successful. And it's a really, really difficult 
um, it's the hardest thing I've ever had to do is, is open my mouth and tell someone what was going on. And I really, personally, I just reached a, dr- a breaking point. You know, I was suicidal. I hated my life. I felt like I was living a lie. I had, you know, I felt like I was living two lives. And it just got to the point for me where if I didn't say something, I was either going to kill myself or run away um, or say something. And that's when I, I decided to, to speak up and tell my mom that he had been sexually abusing me for years. I mean, and and then you have to go to court and you have to do, I mean, there's so much more. It's not just that like, oh, I told someone and now we can start to move forward. I, I've heard, right. I've heard. I've seen other interviews where you talk about, you know, hitting a real rock bottom. And then also this one thing that you love so much and you're so good at judo. It, it's even mm-hmm. I, I, I had a hard time even, you know, as you were describing it at the panel, like just kind of wrapping my head around. Here's your, this thing that's supposed to be your outlet, supposed to be your escape. And you've described it as it became this prison. So how did you find yep. the strength to both come forward and see this through and help your, um, you know, your you're, you're then coach, you know, he, he's now behind bars, but also get back yep. to the sport, which could have easily, you could have easily walked away from as part of the healing process. Yeah, I think really that the reason I chose to stay with judo and the reason that, you know, I'm still involved to this day is really because of the people around me. Um, you know, I didn't want to do judo. I hated judo. I hated my life. And I was, I felt like I was never going to be whole or happy again. Um, but I moved to Boston and I started training with my coaches now, Jimmy and Big Jim, and they really changed my life and they saved my life. And they made it okay for me just to be Kayla and just to be a kid again and to heal through judo. You know, judo was this place where I went where it didn't matter who I was. They treated me like every other athlete on the mat. I was nothing special. There was no, you know, I didn't have to deal with my past. And because of that, I was able to, to start to heal and to grow as an athlete and as a person. But it's not easy. You have to have a, a team around you and you have to have people around you who believe in you um, before you can believe in yourself again. And and being able to have them in my corner has, has ultimately led me to where I am today. And where you are today, I mean, what, a, what an amazing story. And you talk so passionately and so positively about you know, you don't think of yourself as a victim of abuse. You are a survivor. You are someone who has persevered. Where did you find that sort of unrelenting positive attitude to to just take this and 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 not just like shove it to the past and say, okay, I'm just going to like bury this, but like to embrace what happened to you and to come out the other side even stronger? Again, I really can't. I just can't applaud and and thank the people that were around me enough. You know, my teammates, my coaches, my family, they all supported me um, without wavering once during that time. And it wasn't, it wasn't, you know, just like a flick of a switch. It wasn't where something where I woke up and said, okay, you know, this is over. I'm a survivor. I'm not a victim. But one thing that my coach really always tried to, to, to drive home was the fact that you're only a victim if you allow yourself to be. Mm-hmm. And once I really started to believe that and really started to understand what that meant, I realized that I wasn't going to be a victim ever, ever again. I was not going to be just a survivor, but I was going to be a thriver. And I was going to grow and change and learn from this and hopefully help other people grow and change and learn from this. Yeah, you mean you mentioned helping other people. As you already talked about, it's it's hard to come forward for the first time and sort of make make what's happening to you known but then you came forward again because you're you're in the public eye i mean you're going to to london you're going to be the 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 u.s's first um judo gold medalist 
and you decide to tell your story publicly. Um, and the response was amazing. I mean, uh, you know, media and, and people coming forward and, and just really saying thank you. But was that also, a, I mean, it had to be a difficult decision too to say, here I am in the public eye and I'm going to use it to highlight the issue and, you know, just put myself out there again, uh, you know, for everyone to kind of hear my story. Absolutely. I think, um, you know, coming forward and, and, and pressing charges and, and putting Daniel behind bars was the hardest thing I've ever had to do. But the second hardest was definitely coming forward in the public eye and sharing my story because those are, you know, our, our society still has a lot of taboo on sexual abuse and there's still a lot of um, shame associated with it. So for me, it was a really scary moment for me to say, okay, I am who I am. This happened to me, but it doesn't define me. And I want people to be able to look at this issue and put a face to it and, and realize that it is a real thing and it does happen. You know, one in four girls and one in six boys will be sexually abused by the age of 18. Mm. And that is a crazy number. And that's something that I never knew until I started talking about it and, and speaking out and, and learning and hearing people come to me and say something similar happened to me and I wish I had said something or, or whatever. But people never had a face to it. You know, it was something that just happened. Oh, that happens in the church, but it doesn't happen in my neighborhood. Oh, but that happens in Boy Scouts, but it doesn't happen in my neighborhood. Oh, that happens, you know, it happens in whatever, but it doesn't happen where I live. But the truth is it does. You know, sexual abuse has no, you know, it doesn't know race or religion or wealth mm -hmm. or status. It happens everywhere. And now you've created your foundation, uh, the Fearless Foundation, which is addressing this issue head on. What are your ambitions for this, and where where do we need to go? How how do people need to start to think about this issue, and how can we work together to act to both prevent it and also to help fellow survivors like yourself? Definitely. Well, the first part of the Fearless Foundation is obviously to help survivors of sexual abuse um, live to their full potential and live a full life. Um, but I, my, my big thing right now is really education. Um, you know, I remember being in school and there being all kinds of educational material on stranger danger and, and bullying and safe sex. And, you know, I remember going through the D.A.R.E. program and learning about drugs and alcohol. <laughs> right. But there's not really any um, educational material on what you should do if someone close to you tries to take advantage of you. And that's not just for kids, but for caretakers and people who work with kids and people who are around them every day. So I'm working with a psychologist from McLean Hospital, a hospital here in Boston that's, you know, world-renowned for this kind of stuff. And we're writing a book together, and it's a very unique thing because we're using my story sort of as a guideline. Like, this is what it looks like, you know, what grooming looks like, and this is what being in the silence looks like, and this is what it looks like when you break that silence, and, and this is how you can get help. And we're going back and forth, and we're, we're setting it up so that it's not just, um, you know, a, another survivor's tale, or it's not just another book on sexual abuse or PTSD or things like that, but it's really a book that encompasses both of it, so it brings the reader in, shows them what it's really like, and then shows them how to overcome it. And we're developing a curriculum for it. We're working on all kinds of apps and things like that. And my goal is really for that to be in, you know, I want it to be in kids' health classes all around the country, and I want parents who, who you know, may be worried about this, have to learn how to talk to their children about this kind of stuff. And I want teachers to have to read it so they can know what signs to look for and coaches and doctors and, and people who are around kids 
so that we can start to change that number. So it's not one in four and one in six, but maybe a much smaller number in the future. Yeah, and I think about sports, and I and this is something that does not cross my mind often. But when in hearing you speak about it, and we talk, we think about the, the the climate that enables sexual abuse. There's a power dynamic a lot of times. There's a lot of opportunity for the um you know the kids to be around um these people unsupervised or on long road trips. I mean, sports feeds into that. Are you concerned that um that there might be a lot more of this happening than we maybe want to admit, or is that just like I don't want to be fanning the flames of paranoia either, but I'm curious for your perspectives, given that this was the environment that um, that you were first exposed to, to this problem, clearly. Yeah, I think that, you know, that is, it definitely happens probably a lot more than we realize because so many victims never come forward or take years to come forward and say something. So my my thought is that it's actually much more prevalent than we even really know, um, which is scary. But again, through education and through starting to have a conversation about it and and really refusing to be quiet, I think that we can start to change that. You know, one of the things about sexual abuse is it thrives in the silence. That's, you know, the victims have to be silent, the the predators have to be silent, and the bystanders have to be silent. So it's really one of those things where if you see something, you have to say something, or if something happens to you, you have to say something. Or if you think something might be going on, you have to say something. Yeah. Um, and I really hope that this, this book and my foundation and, and all the things that I'm trying to accomplish really start that conversation and make it okay for people to have this conversation. You know, it's, it's, it should be okay to talk about. Yeah, I think destigmatizing it is so important. And you mentioned the book is, is, is under production right now. Uh, how else can people get involved um, with the foundation? Where should they go to learn more? Foundation is still sort of being built. Um, it's getting closer and closer every day. I hope for it to have its own website up and running soon. But in the meantime, people can go to KaylaHarrison.com slash foundation, and they can learn all about it there. If they click contact, you know, that goes directly to me. They can hear, you know, they can get my thoughts or get on the email list for the foundation and, and find out what's going to be happening and what's coming up real soon. Well, that's fantastic. And I got to ask you this, I mean, on, on, a, on a, a more positive note to end here. You've retired from judo. Uh, following your your second gold medal, um, you know, how are you enjoying? What, what's one thing you've treated yourself to in in retirement that you would never do in the middle of your training cycle? Um, well, I will be honest with you. There are some days where I do not set an alarm clock, and I just wake up when I wake up, and that <laughs> is something I've never done in my life. So I'm enjoying that for sure. Yeah, I, I would say uh, I would say so. How about like? Um, I know. Any grandiose, any grandiose plans? I mean, I know that there's all this speculation about, um, oh, are they going to lure you into other, you know, into you know, the pro MMA circuit or whatever else? I mean, I don't think you're going to yeah. be breaking, breaking all of your plans now. But like, I guess ha- you're so young and so accomplished. When you think about being like kind of, quote, retired, it means something totally different yeah. for the young athlete. So like, how do you even process the road ahead and, and, and you know, start to, to map out like choices that you want to make? Yeah, I mean, it's something that's definitely, you know, I'm taking my time making decisions about the rest of my life. It's um, it's really weird to wake up and not have a goal and not have, um, you know, a goal with an actual deadline. Like, you know, we all knew I was going to fight on August 11th. So for four years, every day, I thought about August 11th. And now <laughs> that doesn't really happen anymore. So for me, it's, it's sort of a, 
a weird transition, but I'm enjoying it, and I'm starting to really um, be able to, to schedule out my days and figure out what I'm doing. And I'm still doing a lot of speaking, a lot of appearances, a lot of fun stuff. You know, I'm going to the Country Music Awards next week. I'm going to the Glamour Awards in a couple weeks. I've got a lot of big stuff in the works that I'm really excited about, and um, I can't wait for this next chapter to begin. I'm really, I think it's going to be amazing. I think it's going to be even better than what I've done on the mat. Is you know, my goal really is to, to not to not have just a legacy on the mat, but to leave an even bigger and better one behind off the mat. You got a favorite country artist? Um, well, my favorite is George Strait for sure, but there's so many it's hard to pick. <laughs> <laughs> I, I I hear. Hey, look, we come from the the you know we're not southwestern Ohio is not exactly Nashville, but uh, if you don't if you don't have plenty of favorites, you know they're gonna kick you out like like if you don't like Skyline right, Chili. Exactly, close <laughs> enough. We know we know our country singers. That's right. Well, we can't thank you enough for joining the, joining the show. I mean, the, your mission is so amazing. We'll drive all of our um all of our listeners to you know check out your website to learn more about the foundation, and then they should follow you on Twitter at judo underscore Kayla. So uh, thank you so much for making the time and best of luck in, in, in your retirement years, if you will. <laughs> thank you so much. I really appreciate you taking the time to talk to me and help me, you know, share my passion and, and spread this. So I really appreciate it. Thank you. When you think about Kareem Abdul-Jabbar's acting career, you surely think of the movie Airplane. First, that's fine. Airplane, all-time classic movie. Second, don't call me Shirley. But it was eight years earlier. Adam, you didn't even get that joke? I got it. Okay. <laughs> not even a pity Not even a pity chuckle from Adam. But it was Hold eight. on. Let's rewind. You want to do, yeah, give, do, give me a pity do another day? Second, don't call me Shirley. <laughs> You oversold it. <laughs> but it was eight years earlier when Kareem made his first mark on the movie industry, and it was by getting his ass kicked by a 5'7 guy in Hong Kong. Of course, that's okay, because that guy was Bruce Lee. He kicked a lot of ass. And that film, Game of Death, remains one of those most memorable and perhaps mysterious films in movie history. So today we're going to recount their epic battle, talk a little bit about the weird details and style of the shooting, and the stuff that makes Game of Death so fascinating. Adam, I'm going to start here. Obvious question. Yeah. Could you take Kareem in a fight? Could I take Kareem Abdul-Jabbar the act today or at no, his age? This the- movie, I dropped you in. No way. I mean, if, first of all, if you take when you take a world-class athlete like Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, who at seven foot, to had the kind of as a young guy and even throughout his career, but especially as a young guy, had the kind of agility and athleticism that he had, um, and also a very coachable guy as a basketball player. And you teach him martial arts, he's going to adapt a lot quicker. I would love to say that I'm a great athlete, I am not. So the short answer is no chance against Cream or Lou Alcinder. The question is really. It's like those nature shows, like, would a lion win a fight with a giraffe? Because he looks like a giraffe doing martial arts. He's just all twiggy, skinny arms, uh-huh. and he moves very, he's got good dexterity, Yep. but he, the way he moves is just a little awkward. A little 
a little stiff. Yeah, and it reminds me like you're watching a, a Discovery Channel like Blue Planet or something, and like a lion's trying to like trying to jump on a giraffe's back, but sure. just can't quite do it. Yep. Still, I think you could take him. I don't know. You know what? You know where I feel I might have an advantage is on the ground. By the way, do you have a do you have a patented like death move, like a finishing move? A uh, patented death move? No, I don't think that I do. I um. I like the reverse naked choke isn't your move? No, that's not my move. Uh, I've gotten a little bit better with an arm triangle, which you do see during the scene. Look it up, folks. Arm triangle. Arm Dude, triangle you need to is. name these things like death moves. Like that's called like a um, a, tri- a triblet. That's uh, the, called a, a, the, a tri- uh, The Cobra Crusher. Trident. Okay, Cobra Crusher. Perfect. Yeah. Was that that hard? Sorry, man. The <laughs> python. Yeah, the trithon. <laughs> Perfect. Ladies. Sold. Gentlemen, we're in branding. <laughs> <laughs> All right, let's let's we're gonna break down the fight in more detail. Let me give you a little bit of background, a little bit of juice about uh, Game of Death here, folks. 1972 motion picture, one of um, Bruce Lee's Hong Kong movies made over there, right? Well, interestingly enough, a 1972 and a 1978. We're film. gonna get there, Got yes, because that's what makes this movie partially so strange. Bruce plays. Big stretch here, a martial arts champion <laughs> who is basically blackmailed by a gang to g- break into this uh, a pagoda. Am I pronouncing that correctly? Pagoda. Yeah, wooden, one, big wooden, you know, Korean-looking building. Yeah, and he's got to break in. I'm I'm aware that Hong Kong is not in Korea. It, it, in the description on Wikipedia, it talks about how they're in Agreed. South Korea. Mm-hmm. I, that was not like me just being ignorant. Uh, so he breaks into this pagoda and he has to go up each floor and get to the top where something really valuable is is there <laughs> which so, we never find out what it right. is right so he's he's being blackmailed by this crime syndicate he's got to go through basically it's basically a, the first video game he has to like level by level scale upward brad i that's exactly what i, I have in my notes <laughs> that this had to influence video games you go through you know you may remember double dragon or Shinobi, where you fight boss by boss by boss. Yeah. And eventually you get to the big boss. And in this case, the big boss is Kareem. Adam, how are we how did we not dress as double dragon for um for Halloween? We look just like the twins, like Ken and Ryu. <laughs> That's that Street w- Fighter. Oh, Street Fighter. But that would have been an awesome costume if we're like, we're twins. I feel like maybe next year you need to get on the yellow jumpsuit and I'll be Kareem. Yeah, we'll see okay. If anybody notices. So Bruce Lee in this movie, and we're gonna talk a lot. We have a we have a lot to unpack about. It's his last movie. He died when filming was incomplete. That's why th- this movie's been sort of through multiple incarnations. The, he's wearing the infamous yellow jumpsuit that I think you would associate with Bruce Lee, especially post Kill Bill. Mm-hmm. where Uma is wearing something that's very much inspired by the same thing. The movie is basically exactly what you expect. He's just kicking ass, going up the chain. He gets to the top. And at the top, the last boss, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar. Young Kareem, way closer to his Lou Alcindor UCLA days. Because 72, he'd been in the league for three seasons. Yeah. This was filmed in 71, so yeah. Two seasons. Uh-huh. So he's really skinny, big hair, big afro wearing sunglasses, and he's just sitting there. So after beating, like, 10 guys who are all black belts per level, you get up there, and here's, like... It'd be like today being, like, I'm going to go solve this crazy crime syndicate's 
plot and beat up all their henchmen. And at the top is like Jaleel Okafor. <laughs> well, exa- we'll get to who <laughs> I would like to see up there. But but that's uh, a strange parallel, right? Yeah, it, it's it's really interesting um, what this really represents in terms of... Uh, so I think one really interesting thing, the Kareem really fits in with the to- with the uh, some of the uh, cinematic themes at the time in terms of the black exploitation era. Okay, I mean he is the the big afro, the sunglasses, even what he's dressed in. He's like the ultimate black exploitation action hero. He just happens to be a martial artist villain. Okay, you- real quick, I would argue the. Ultimate black exploitation hero is Shaft. Shaft. <laughs> well, Kareem should have clearly had a series of his own after this movie. I mean, look, I'm just going to say it right now. He is an underwhelming last villain to me. Wilt is just as tall, but had more beef to him. So when you see Wilt in like Conan the Destroyer or Conan the Barbarian, yeah. he looks like a dude who would just crush skulls. Kareem, to me, even though his martial arts are better than you'd expect, he I'm just not buying it, man. Well, here's why I buy it, and and because there's a little backstory here. So in 1967, um, Kareem is in L.A., and kind of towards the begin, beginning of the martial arts trend, Kareem decides he wants to train in martial arts. So he talks to a, a local martial arts magazine, and they send him to a guy named Bruce Lee, who's pre-Uber fame Bruce Lee. I think probably at the time that he was teaching and probably also on Green Hornet. And Kareem becomes a student um, of Bruce's from 1967 uh, through 1971. I had no idea. Yeah. I thought they were just like, let's get a tall dude and someone sent him Kareem. Also interesting is, is this time in... Um, Bruce Lee's martial arts development. So he was uh, a traditionally trained Kung Fu artist, but after uh, some real life fights, you realized uh, that his method or Kung Fu was probably too, too traditional, too many fixed forms and took too long to really end a fight. So he um, created a martial art called Jeet Kune Do, which really, uh, emphasizes mobility, flexibility, of mixes a, a variety of martial arts. In fact, probably the first technical uh, mixed martial art. Um, and he, as he transitions from Kung Fu into Jeet Kune Do, that's what you see happening in this actual, this last scene. Um, I could really pick up on that. So, so <laughs> no, you see, hey, look like so I did foot Jeet Kune Do for guy. a very short time <laughs> when I moved to Chicago and, uh, Let's say the instructor was a little unhinged. Uh, By the way, so this I is like stopped, when you when you say, "Hey, I want to talk to the karate kid about karate," and he's like, "No, no, we're gonna start with like sanding a floor <laughs> for like twenty hours." Yeah. It's like it's like you're it's like you're talking about setting up your DVD player, man. <laughs> so uh, get to the fighting. Uh, so where was I? Um, anyway, so what meant what this whole movie or this move through the through through the pagoda is meant to represent is kind of the evolution of Bruce Lee's own martial arts style. So if you watch some of the other scenes, he fights against a guy who has the Filipino Escrima sticks, who mm-hmm. uh, Dan and Santo, 
who actually became one of Bruce's students as well. He fights against a Hapkido guy. And throughout these fight scenes, he's saying, uh, your art is this. You are not flexible enough. And he's almost preaching about his art. And then he gets to the top and he finds his equal, a guy who happens to be a Jeet Kune Do practitioner in real life. Oh, real quick, before we mercifully move on from that backstory, <laughs> was he? Didn't he get a lot of crap from the basically the powers that be at the time for shifting these traditions into his own free flowing style? He got crap for teaching uh, traditional Chinese martial arts to non Chinese. Okay, within the the martial arts community within California, Cream was. I mean, he could have passed for Chinese. Clearly, I mean, there's a billion people. There's like Yao more, more than Kareem, a billion. right? Yeah. Um, all right. We can move into the fighting. I just felt that was important. And look, it is. I give you, I, I'm giving you and shit. And because but I'm a nerd and whenever I can yeah. nerd out about something I actually know about. It's just, the, martial arts is interesting, but there, there reaches this kind of reverence for it that I could never match. So it's kind of like, this. it's the equivalent of me going back and being like, Friday the 13th part six was shot so beautifully and right. has many subtle subtle takes against Reaganomics that you'd notice if you watched and people would be like, mm, right. <laughs> like, yeah, yeah, I yeah. don't care. All right, let's talk about the fight. There's no question that Kareem, he looks cool. He's wearing sunglasses. Mm -hmm. He looks pretty chilled out. Mm -hmm. uh, he First of all, he's in that room indefinitely, right? Like, it's a Apparently pagoda. waiting. No, yeah. He's apparently waiting. No one's coming. What? What's he doing up there? There's no TV. I didn't see any books. He's just chilling. Just like the boss in a video game, waiting for the inevitable, someone to come attack him. <laughs> <laughs> Boring life, man. If you get thinking about getting into crime, just think about all the waiting around. Or maybe because of, as we'll find out, his sensitivity to light, that room is perfect for him, and that's home. All right, so spoiler alert. Kareem sun wears sunglasses, and apparently he's sensitive to light, and that's his weakness. By the way, Adam, I watched this thing three times. Never picked up on that until I read about it on Wikipedia. Really? Never picked up on it. I was just like, how oh, did he you not pick up? He was I was like, he locked his sunglasses off, and now he's pinned him, and he's done. Are you serious? <laughs> I'm being dead serious. He pokes out the holes in the paper. The sunlight comes through, and he's blinded. I thought it was because, okay, yeah. I, I Honestly, the first time I watched it, I just thought he was blind. And then I was like, oh, that's kind of cool. He's just using like other senses. I got, you thought he I was just, daredevil. Yeah. And and then I was like, okay. <laughs> I, didn't, I didn't watch. I didn't watch it too closely on the first one. I was more. I was honestly just like trying to. Okay, Gareth. I was. Look, Sorry, Gareth. No, I've broken kidding. this down multiple times. I got a number of opinions. I, I don't think that the fight itself is all that compelling it, it's it, it's interesting to watch kareem move around i think they do a, a couple good things that like he's in the chair bruce lee walks up to him and he kicks him but like they didn't use his height anywhere near what i thought they would like he needed to like hop up on a table and just be like kicking bruce lee in the face before bruce can even get near him or something agreed in a real fight between a guy who's five seven and seven two or like the guys i spar against were six foot or shorter, uh, you want to use your height as much as possible. If you're getting jump kicked in the face by someone five, seven at seven, two, yeah. you're doing something wrong. And Kareem, we're not ripping him. He looks great. 
he looks very effective. I mean, he's not he's like he's not a professional martial artist. He's this a isn't big Dennis guy. Rodman and double team like trying yeah. to pretend like he can fight. It, the 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 novelty of this scene is the uh the different the the size difference. That I mean, it's it's a black guy with an afro against a five seven guy in a yellow jumpsuit. Highly visual in terms of technical martial arts. This is not the best scene. However, if you look at the two previous scenes, they're some of the most beautifully choreographed fight scenes I've ever seen in a movie. Missed opportunity. Bruce Lee didn't do like a roundhouse kick and like shave off the top part of that afro. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> I should have been writing some of these, man. I also think Bruce Lee knocks him down a few times and looks like disgusted. Like just like a get up, like you should be doing. It, that's the other thing that really bothers me about it. It's supposed to be the final... <clears throat> act of this huge journey for the character and against the crime syndicate. And he gets up and, and within a few kind of exchanges, he's knocked Kareem down a couple times and he, he does give him like a look like, come on. It gives him the look that Morpheus gives Nia, which I'm sure is aped from it uh-huh. when he's like, come on, hit, quit trying to hit me and hit me. And I, I never was convinced that Kareem was going to beat him. And I'm not look, I get it. It's a Bruce Lee movie. He's not going to beat him. Yeah. But it never felt like there were, um, there were emotional there was never or, an imminent danger. or stakes. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And that's a bummer because I think Kareem, I, I guess what I, I left feeling like this, they could have done more with Kareem than they did. I felt like he was, he was given it. And Bruce is clearly like the best ever at, at, you know, these types of martial arts movies. I would have wanted to see, just like a couple more things that really just made you go, damn, like that's insane. Only Kareem could do that. A, a couple of things. Yeah. They, they, they really didn't, he's doing a, Kareem is doing a lot of, um, sidekicks, roundhouses, spinning back kicks, uh, not, double dragons, not a lot of, and I, again, we get, you get it. it you want to make it look good. Uh, but the guys reach alone. Uh, as well as just strength, whether or not you say he's skinny or not, his physical strength at seven seven two, two hundred and sixty seven pounds at the time. He never tries to get his hands on Bruce Lee to subdue him physically. Also, Bruce Lee early on recovers from a couple shots that would, in reality, knock him out. And if you're if you're a tall guy like Kareem and you're fighting against a five seven guy. You want to end that fight as quickly as possible. You're not doing spinning kicks. You're trying to get that guy in a chokehold and take him out. And at seven foot two, you got a pretty good chance if you get a hand on him. Right. On the other hand, Bruce Lee, uh, a lot of body shots and shots to the head. If you're five seven, you don't want to do that to a seven two guy. If I'm Bruce Lee in an actual fight, here's what I'm doing: I'm leg kicking. Kareem. Yeah, like go right for the knees, man. Right for the knees like, and just testicles. Like you, knees and testicles. Just like you see in any <laughs> MMA fight against a guy who moves a little bit slow or is, is flat-footed, you're going to go for the legs because seven. You could be seven two all, all you want if you if you have a broken femur and you can't move. Fight is over. I mean, the the most I think the most pure martial arts move is is going on all knees, begging for mercy, and when they turn around, hitting him with a folding chair. <laughs> And I didn't see that once. <laughs> also, for Jeet Kune Do, that's supposed to be the most efficient of all martial arts, this fight lasts nine minutes. <laughs> <laughs> it felt 
It felt longer. I mean, it look, Kareem did great. We're not ripping Kareem. He was awesome. I just I wanted to see a little bit more of Kareem's flourish. And I felt like I couldn't tell if maybe that's be well, maybe that's because Bruce Lee died. Not in the scene, but it's you never know what they would have done with reshoots. So as the story goes, he leaves to go film something else, right? He goes Enter to the Hong Dragon. Kong. Yeah. Because he gets a lot had, of money to go do paused, the Dragon. Yeah, they had, they had suspended filming on Game of Death. Yeah, he's in Hong Kong, um, yeah, for Enter the Dragon and has allergic re- reaction to uh, medication and has a, essentially a brain hemorrhage. And let's, uh, let's get in this. Um, do you believe he was murdered? No, he was not murdered. I'm not generally into these conspiracy theories. <laughs> no, I think... Uh, I think the guy at the most, what you could say is this guy did a lot of experimental things to his body. Um, and that may have somewhat contributed to like, what do you mean? Drugs? Well, I mean like the guy, he used to hook up electrodes to his chest that would, uh, like pump them up. They would like simulate doing a hundred pushups in a minute. I, he experimented with, I don't want to, I'm not saying that he took drugs, but I'm saying he experimented with a lot of supplements that may have had right. some kind of health impact. That is purely a guess and speculation. Odds are he had an allergic reaction to something that he took pre-existing that triggered something that was a pre-existing condition and he died. Yeah. I mean, in the spirit of the internet, I'm just going to go ahead and say hundred percent murder. Just, well, the, our, my earlier my earlier hammer, Jesse Ventura, conspiracy theorists would probably agree with you. <laughs> well, they recut the film in '78, but they did it because there's only the film is only like 40 minutes. They had like an hour plus of footage. Right. They got 40 minutes out of a movie, but then they recut it into a full length feature with like another dude playing the lead and this stuff happening on the side. Right. Yeah, they did. Um, which was the beginning, well, not the beginning, but a, a trend that continued into the 80s of people trying to profit off of Bruce Lee. Um, we've see, certainly seen it happen in music since then, but that was kind of unusual at the time. There were a lot of Bruce, Bruce Lee lookalikes coming out of um, out of Hong Kong. Like Chuck Norris. <laughs> well, I mean, guys who had names very similar to Bruce Lee. Like Jonathan Brandeis like from Bruce Three Royce. Uh They tried to capitalize on the Bruce Lee trend, and so to recut Game of Death with, with two guys who did not look like him, <laughs> other than the fact that they were Asian, um, was in pretty poor taste. I read uh, that they used the real footage from his real funeral. They did. That is they insane. That. It's uh, yeah. And then it's even weird that like Brandon Lee, Brandon Lee does um, the crow dies and, on set. Yeah, and like he dies on set mysteriously. Also murdered. Also, <laughs> no, also an accident. The guy who killed Brandon Lee by accident um, just died like this week. He did. Yeah, I, he was an actor. And it was like the the he was supposed to shoot him with blanks, right? It seemed, something was lodged in the yeah, gun. like either either like an old casing or something like got through and out. That's why I just don't, I just just shoot a gun. They'll just add the special effects later. I just don't understand. I don't either. Like, what's the point? You got me. Do Do you think Kareem would have been better if he had guns? Fighting I was going to say or knives, not guns, swords or something. Weapons. Yeah. I, I think that was one of the really cool things that Bruce Lee did that you didn't see uh a lot in American martial arts movies was he incorporated 
weapons. Like the nunchuck was not unlike popular myth. That was not a ninja weapon. It was something that he had seen used uh, by some martial arts practitioners that he knew. And he decided to incorporate into movies. I think like if you give uh, cream, a couple of uh, Wing Chun swords, Kung Fu swords, Mm -hmm. Imagine the the height and length he already has, and you add some swords to that length. Then you're talking about a more dynamic fight. Let's do. At least better. it gives him something to do other than spin kick. Yeah. Okay. To wrap this, let's do better fighter. Okay. Uh huh. Kareem or Chuck Norris. Uh Chuck Norris. Oh, that's right. You were like you like actually believe chuck norris was good at martial arts chuck norris is one of the best karate fighters ever tournament fighters he's a he's a legit fighter no not buying it um all right (laughs) better fighter kareem or ralph macchio right after karate kid raps when he's perfectly trained ralph macchio is one of the worst movie (laughs) martial artists ever all right and i love karate kid but he's not He's not a martial artist. Neither is Pat Morita, for for that matter. Kareem or Michelangelo? Michelangelo. Who is the worst of the of the Ninja Turtles? Donatello. In terms of fighting, yeah. That's just because he had the big stick, right? We let's run it down real quick. Leonardo. <laughs> That's what we do on Just Not Sports, uh, and I'm most, talking about Ninja Turtles. Most disciplined. He's kind of your. Malcolm Gladwell guy, 10,000 hours. Yeah. Raphael, most raw talent. Um, Michelangelo. Most oh, athletic. Most athletic. Yeah. And then Donatello, he invents stuff and he has a cool bow staff, but um, he's really on a fight on his own. He's getting a shell kicked. <laughs> shell kicked. <laughs> All right. Well, watch Game of Death. Is the whole thing online? Did you see it all online? The scene is online. Go, it's on YouTube. Go check yeah, it out. But you, you can, can you watch the whole movie online for free now. You can. I don't, don't bother. <laughs> it's <laughs> it is the worst of all the Bruce Lee movies, too, in my opinion. Yeah. All right. Well. All right. Well. Speaking Hold of up. things to watch online. Oh, but wait. You know who I would like to see reprise this role? Who? Giannis. Antikint- I knew I'd screw this. I up. knew you would too. We talked about this last week. Giannis. Anto, no, Anta Tukumpo. You're looking at me like I'm going to just be the authority in this against Tony Tony Jai from Ongbok. <laughs> okay. Mm-hmm. All right. Imagine what you do with Giannis. We're just gonna call him Giannis. That dude is a seven foot ball handler, probably the most freakish athlete. In the NBA, imagine if you teach that dude martial arts. He is never giving up the UFC title. I got one better. Okay. Garnett. Garnett now or in his prime? I'll take him now. In his prime. I'll take him now, too. Nah. He's got that intensity. Mm. Don't let make no mistake. Anger is not necessarily a benefit to you in martial arts. Well, it depends on if he's using the force. Mm. Okay. <laughs> I'll give you Kevin. Kevin, Kevin Garnett's a good pull. I'll give you that. Yeah. Or Marcus Camby. <laughs> wow. <laughs> Finn Baker. Finn Baker. Oh, Finn Baker. And before we make any more comments about Finn Baker, we're going to take a quick break. We'll be back with our distractions right after this. 
And we are back in the sports world. When guys do awesome stuff like movies, music, hobbies, we love it. You love it. But some people just deem it a distraction. We know better. That's why every week on the show we praise the things that are distracting us. So, Adam, just you and me today. We got to bring our A games. Yeah, man. What's distracting you? Uh, transcranial direct current stimulation. Is that like what you plug into your, uh, like onto your pecs to make them work out? Interesting you say that because I was thinking about this as I was talking about Bruce Lee. No, this is uh, something that I heard about on a Radio Lab podcast about a year ago called Nine Volt Nirvana. Did you hear this by any chance? No. So uh, it's supposed to help you increase learning. And also, as I mentioned, now that it's dark outside, sometimes I get a little bit of seasonal depression and. Uh, after doing some research about this device, uh, it's a, it stimulates your neurons in your brain. Uh, I decided to give it a try. You can get them on Amazon or other vendors uh, or other uh, retailers for about 150 bucks. And okay, uh, you're supposed to do it a few times a week. I don't. I I've, the jury's still out. I don't know if it's placebo effect. What is it? So, so basically, it's a uh, a small box that kind of looks like a a video game or small radio. Um, two nine volt batteries. You have two electrodes. You place on one part of your skull and another part of your skull. You do a lot of research on like certain placements will have different effects. Like if I put one on my temple and on my left shoulder, that's supposed to help increase learning if i put one um sorry folks you can't see this visual but on this part of my skull and on this other part of my skull that's supposed to help for anxiety and you do it for uh 10 minutes a session four times a week and after a certain amount of time you're supposed to notice a difference in cognitive function etc everything i've read said that it's safe i've didn't in fact i didn't find anything that said it was unsafe so i thought i'll do a little self-experimentation and see if this this thing works if it helps uh helps my brain function at all this sounds terrifying it does and i'm out on this oh i i knew that i would see that look in your eyes did you test this on your cat first be honest no (laughs) i would have you would have. You yeah, just dude, I'm not gonna hook up. I'm not gonna hook up like electrodes to my body unnecessarily. I mean, what's the worst that could happen? Like your whole brain <laughs> melts down. Bruce Lee, we just talked about it. True. Better not have an Advil in Hong Kong. Ah, oh, man, that is terrifying. And so, are you, you said you're feeling better. I am, but again, I don't know if it's placebo effect. There is a tingling. could it be relief that you're still alive when it's over. Uh, no, uh, there is a bit of a tingling sensation while it happens, which kind of feels good like in my your, brain. in your man parts? Like when I'm playing NBA, I do it, I, I have it on while I play NBA 2K and, uh, 31 assists last time I did it. So I don't know. Cognitive function on the so up That's an NBA record. So I guess I'm doing pretty good. What team were you? Uh, I'm on the Utah Jazz. That's where I got drafted. I, my free agent year comes up after this year. You I'm, just, I'm, 
No, no <laughs> loyalty. Yeah, I probably, I'm probably going to LA taking the cash. <laughs> <laughs> Is it? Did those games take like? The full like two hours to play each one. You can set it for as many quarters as for as long as you want. I do nine minute quarters, which you don't play every minute of every quarter, so it's probably about thirty minutes a game. That's the only thing about video games getting more realistic is that you can't just sit down and like plow through a season easily anymore. No, well, because NBA Two K, which let's be honest, is my probably my biggest distraction. Um, not only you have practices in between. Do individual practices? It's ridiculous. You have appearances. That's to not make. appearances. So it's like you know, the it Adam Millard of the video game is like, hey man, you you're late for yeah. your interviews with it, Dan Patrick. It doesn't show you going to the appearances, but it's sometimes fictional companies, sometimes real companies, and you get uh, VC or virtual currency in the game for going to these appearances. Who who wants to play a video game where you have to do that? I do. It's the my career mode. If you don't like that, there's other ways. There's GM mode. There's my team mode. I happen to like the career mode. I just don't have as much time to play it. But it's kind of nice, like a nice way to end the day, like 30 minutes of NBA 2K, and I'm off to bed. It's it, it's it's kind of like it's kind of like renting a porno, and and like the first few scenes are like meeting the other person's parents and <laughs> like going what to dinner. What are you watching? No, that's what I mean. Like, it's like, why would you play a video game and want to be like doing appearances? I'm going to cut this out. Don't worry about it. Okay. Let's just cut <laughs> it. What's your, what's your distraction, Brad? All right. I want to talk about Alan Resnick. Do you know him? No. He is the creator of what I would call Multimedia wormhole horror. <laughs> okay. Here we go. Yep. Yeah, this is happening. Mm-hmm. So, have you heard of uh, unedited footage of a bear? It was an adult swim video that starts, it looks like a YouTube that's like, hey, I just took, I found this bear eating and here's me recording it on my cell phone. And then an advertisement breaks in that looks like it's an advertisement for. Um, like an allergy medicine. And it says like, you know, in the corner, it says like, you can skip this ad in a minute or whatever. Mm-hmm. And then as they're doing the symptoms, the whole thing just unravels and it becomes this like a horror drama. And it's super deep and it's super creepy. It came out like two years ago. I had seen it back then, but I stumbled onto an article. Excuse me. <laughs> I'd seen it back then, but I stumbled onto an article about it that directed you to this website that's still live. Uh-huh. And in the website, you can like explore the house where this like alleged maybe murder and terror took place. It was insane, like and so scary to like kind of stumble upon this. And this takes me to this whole world of this guy Alan Resnick who created it, and he does these multimedia projects that have like TV components and also like these huge worlds that you have to uncover and piece together in digital. You're looking at me. I don't understand what you're saying, but I want to check it out. So, like, there's one that says this house has people in it, and it's just really strange. It's this really strange video I saw last year that is about, like, a catastrophe happening to, like, a weird ailment that, like, essentially, like, makes you sink into the floor. And this girl is in this house, and she's, like, sinking into the floor. 
And to explain it, to unearth it, you have to go online and learn all these like clues and like these Redditors get into it. And then there's the, the creme de la creme is this thing called Allen tutorial. Have you heard about this? No. I want to say, yeah, I've heard of it because I'm cool and in touch with millennial no. stuff. But the answer is no, I'm not. Th- this one is like a series of videos by this guy who seems to be autistic or at least like, uh, you know, mentally challenged in some capacity. And mm. it's just a series of like YouTube tutorials. Like, hey, I'm Alan. I'm going to teach you how to do this and this. And it looks like just a bad series of them. And then again, it like spirals out of control. And over like several videos, you have to like piece together these like weird clues that make this like terrifying world come to life. So awesome. these things are strange. Uh, I, again, I'd seen them at the time. I, I was listening to a podcast that was talking about them. I sort of like rediscovered them this week and figured they're all online. And like the digital worlds and the Reddit threads about them are online. Highly recommend checking it out. If you like horror stuff and you don't necessarily want you're still in the spirit like maybe detoxing from amc's you know halloween marathons i'm into i'm not even into horror and i'm fascinated by what you're going through the house and clicking on the media stuff was like legitimately terrifying this is cool because you're just expecting like something's gonna jump or then it shows you a room and you're like what's going on this sounds like the perfect thing next time i'm on an airline with reliable wi-fi rather than rent a movie i'm doing this yeah. Right? Yeah. I mean. Do you want to do it with other people around? I don't know. Maybe not an airplane. Be like, oh, hey, what are you watching? What about like the American <laughs> Airlines lounge in the corner by myself? I love the Admiral's Club. Yeah. Big fan of the Admiral's Club. That's what it's called, the Admiral's Club. You can tell how often I get in there. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Uh, that's our show for this week. Uh, Adam, I think we did a good job holding on the fort for the boys. We did. We talked a lot. Yeah. Uh, so if you don't like it, fucking get Joe and Gareth back. <laughs> yeah, email those guys uh, at, at, at not the just not sports handle where they are not. No, uh, we'll give you it. their personal email addresses. Yeah, we'll right. post it with this episode. So let's give some shout outs. I want to give a shout out to Kayla Harrison. Amazing athlete. Amazing story. Her story is just really inspiring. I think her whole mantra about I'm not a victim. I'm a survivor is something that we can all not just like be amazed by, but also learn from and take bits and pieces from for our own lives. I mean, she's an amazing person. I love the work she's doing with her, her fearless foundation and we wish her nothing but the best, you know, moving forward. Yeah. And I think that's, you know, I think that's so important um, for any of us. Obviously what she went through is severely traumatic, but I think, even some of us will look at our own flaws and say, ah, this happened because of the way my my parents raised me or this thing happened to me in my life. And at some point, you move on from that feeling of uh, being terrorized and you make the decision that you're going to move forward. And uh, that's inspiring for anybody, no matter what you've been through. In life. Yeah, absolutely, man. She's great. So, Adam, any shout-outs to end us out this week? <sighs> you know... I think I'm just going to go uh, with the the usual shout-outs. So shout-out to our family. My boy Uzi, mm-hmm. Def Jeff, Little Swanee, Meech, Ron Mack, and my other cousin Ron. Interesting. Um, 
your other cousin, Ron, the only one who's not a blood relative. Right. <laughs> right. Well, cousin, I'm half and half, as you might know. And in the black community, cousins use very loosely. <laughs> no comment from me on that. I've no, you're not allowed to. That's okay. Exactly. I'm allowed to. <laughs> All right. And with that, thank you for listening. And in the immortal words of Shaquille O'Neal, booty rappers. Stay booty. Stay booty. Peace. Booty. Booty. But.